if you could travel back in time and change any famous historical event, where would you go and what would you attempt to change? I can't believe I'm, I'm going to say this, but I think I would change the way that religion was structured. Um, Interesting. I have nothing against religion, but what came up when you asked that was that people see each other as separate. And that could have happened before religion, of course. But I think then there were these groups of I am this and you are that. And I am better than, I am holier than, you are not. And I think there's been so many wars and so many things fought over differences and separation. And I guess how I am in the work that I do with people is always going to the root and the deepest place possible that will catalyze the biggest change. And I mean, there's so many things that I could say from even in the last hundred years that I'd like to change. It's like deeper than that. Mm -hmm. The root is maybe around the time when people really started to see themselves as separate and then fighting over it. So whenever that was, maybe that was way pre-religion a few thousand years before religion, but whatever that point was, mm -hmm. that's what I'd change. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Allison Interviews. So when I do my interviews, I think it's important to note that yes, most of them are celebrity interviews, although a lot of them are just people that I find in my travels. A lot of it is like trolling around on YouTube looking for people with really interesting stories to tell and and then I'll stalk them for a while and then I'll approach them and ask them for an interview. But um, just generally speaking, whether you know who somebody is or not, the main thing that I look for in the people that I interview are people that have transformed themselves in some way. So whether they are an Oscar winning actor or a Grammy winning musician or somebody who makes amazing YouTube videos or a health expert, like whatever the case may be, the one common denominator that all of my guests have is that I feel like their story can be an example for other people to really be inspired by. So like it goes beyond entertainment, you know, it's inspiration, it's education. And by the way, that's goes for me also, not just for you guys. Like I learned so much from the people I interview and I would like to think that they learn some things from me as well. I think that it's kind of that really good exchange of energy so the guest that I have on for this episode comes from a very famous Hollywood family. Everyone knows television producer Aaron Spelling. He created The Love Boat, Charlie's Angels, 90210, Melrose Place, and on and on and on. And everyone knows that he and his wife Candy had two kids, Tori Spelling, who was one of the stars of 90210 and has been in the public eye ever since, and her younger brother Randy Spelling, who was on the Hollywood scene quite a bit in his younger days. And I believe he was on several television shows as well. He actually started off early in his life as a television actor and kind of just going along with the family business, if you will. 
And then somewhere along the line, he realized that that was not his path, that his path was more of a quieter, more spiritual path where he ultimately became a very successful life coach. And I would even venture to say kind of a spiritual leader as well. I mean, he just has this really beautiful quiet confidence and really centered energy. And the funny thing about Randy is that when I was living in Los Angeles in my early 20s, I actually met him socially. I hung out at his parents' house and I went out clubbing with him and a group of other kids. I'm going to say kids because we were like, I don't know, Randy might have been like 19 or something. And I think I was 23. And we talked about this during the interview that I was a much different person back then. He was a much different person back then. And how I actually found him, I think it was on Instagram. And I don't, and again, I I say this during the interview, but I don't remember how I came across his content, but I found him on Instagram and I saw that he was a life coach and that he was putting out all of these really beautiful spiritual messages. And not only was the content different from the person that I had met way back when, like more than 20 years ago, it was more than that. And like I say to him, and and you'll hear it during this episode, his eyes look different. His skin looked different. The structure of his body and his face looked different. I mean, it was a completely different human being. And that was something that I could truly relate to because it wasn't until my early 30s that I really took the time to delve a little bit deeper into who I was as a human being, what my purpose was on this earth, and really how I wanted to live out my adult life. Okay. So that was like an interesting parallel that I think that we both share and had in common. So it was really nice to reconnect with him and we discuss everything. We discuss his family, we discuss his early Hollywood days, and then we discuss his really remarkable transformation into just one of the top life coaches and somebody that you should really get to know and definitely follow on social media. So sit back and relax and enjoy this interview with Randy Spelling. This was, I think, in 1999. I had been out, I forget what day of the week it was, but I had been out all night. I was 23 years old. I had been out all night. I mean, all night. I Uh came in at 7 a.m. I was on no sleep. And I get this phone call from this girl, Vicky, that I was like kind of friends with, but not who someone I would consider like a close friend. And she says to me, I'm going to hang out with this guy. I think his name was Brian. Did you have a friend named Brian when you were younger? Yeah. Yeah. Right. She's like, I'm going to go hang out with this guy, Brian, and he has this friend, Randy, and we don't want him to be a third wheel. So can you come? I was like ready to crash because I was so tired. But she so kind this of was like, still at seven in the morning. No, she called me at like eight in the morning. Okay. Okay. <laughs> she's like, she's like, please, I need somebody to just come with me just to like round out the group. So we go to your parents' house sometime in the evening. And I didn't know that you were the Randy that she was talking about. So we go into this like room in your house. I think it was like a little, like a little man cave kind of, I remember you were standing behind a wet bar and I was like, so out of it, but I was trying to make conversation and be personable. And then we all went to this club. And the one thing that sticks out in my mind is that your friend, Brian was going on and on and on about the fact that you were a hypochondriac. 
And I really? was like, wow, I like, right? Because like a man after my own heart, because I, I was kind of like that too at the time. But I don't know, but we were hanging out at this club and I remember that, you know, like everybody was young. So everybody was like smoking and drinking and yada, yada, yada. So, I mean, that was like it, that like nothing crazy happened that night, but I had a snapshot of you in my head as like an LA party guy, right? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I forget how I found one of your videos. I don't know where it was. It might've been on Instagram. And I see this person, I knew it was you, but you had like such a different look in your eye. You, you just had a completely different energy about you. And I see you talking about a lot of the things that you do now with your coaching. And I thought, wow, that's incredible to me because I will tell you that when I was in my early 20s, I was in a completely different place in my life. Like I always say, I knew my name. I knew what I looked like and I knew my social security number. That was it. Right. So I kind of feel like your journey is kind of similar in that you didn't know who you were. And then you had to like go on this journey of self-discovery to find out who you were. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who I was back then was the guy who was going out to clubs. I mean, that's what I knew, right? So it was mm -hmm. drinking or it was partying and I think within that, I always hopefully had good conversations with people and yeah, yeah. cared about people. However, yeah, it was just like, oh, let's get a drink. Let's do that. Because right. I was trying to find myself and my way. And unfortunately, one of the ways that I was trying to find that was by external influences and trying to fill myself up from the inside out. And as you know, all of those things trying to fill yourself up with just doesn't work. Right. What was it like from the vantage point of a kid seeing what was going on in terms of, because I went to your website and I saw that you wrote a little bit about the fact that your father, Aaron Spelling, was a very powerful guy, one of the most influential people in Hollywood, hit television show after hit television show. And you're being like brought along on this ride of this grandiose life, but you're just a kid. So what is that like from the vantage point of a kid? Yeah, it, people often ask this and it's, that's what I knew, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way it's like, well, what was your childhood like? You know, I had parents and I had a mm -hmm. sibling and I wanted to play with everyone. I wanted everyone to play with me. And from that standpoint, that was the same from all of the stuff and having the spotlight on me. I think I looked at it. Maybe you can relate to this. I looked at it very differently in my twenties and even in my late twenties and early thirties. Mm -hmm. And I was someone who I needed to find my way, right? I had to go to therapy and work some things out and I'm happy that I did all that. But within that, it was sort of like, it, this wasn't like that. And here's what I wanted. And I didn't get it. And it's sort of like blaming everyone else, right? And everything else right. around me. And at some point, what led me to this work, it, it was, I'm not getting anywhere with this. Okay, great. So I had this or I didn't have this. And this was hard. And, you know, mm -hmm. trying to fill my father's shoes and my parents were busy. I, you know, I would have liked to have had more time with them, which I'm sure a lot of kids feel like. Yeah. And it, 
really defined the way that I looked at my childhood and I painted one picture and ran with that picture. So every time I would look at the picture of my childhood and people would ask me questions, I would have this, I don't know, sort of a more sad, maybe partially victimized way of viewing it. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, you don't understand, you know, I had all this, but really there was a lot of pressure just from people thinking that I was going to be this or be that. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of times where I didn't feel like I lacked a sense of purpose. I didn't feel enough in many ways. I was insecure. So I had this one static picture of my childhood. And then as I started growing, I started doing this work and I started doing some really deep inner spiritual work and all sorts of things started to come to life. And it was amazing how I could remember all of these good things and all of these other beautiful moments. And I was walking with a friend the other day and this came up and maybe it's fun to share. As I said, you know, the way that people view their past sometimes is on a smartphone and you see a picture and that picture is what is kept in your mind. And you look at that picture and you have the same feelings about that picture over and over. But nowadays you can hold the picture and you see three seconds before and three seconds after. And I feel like once someone really does deeper work on themselves and starts to heal parts of their past, you start to see but there were some beautiful moments before that one static picture. And there were beautiful moments after that picture. And so for me, what once was sort of a hardened crystallized, Oh, this is how it was Mm -hmm. so much more acceptance. Yeah. This was a crazy childhood. And I saw celebrities and, you know, was going to rap parties and life moved pretty fast for me from an early age. I was getting into clubs when I was 13, 14 years old, but there were some incredible, beautiful family moments and things that, you know, my parents did for us because they loved us and they wanted us to be happy and they wanted to see joy on our faces. So I could see the whole complexity of it. It almost sounds like what I'm hearing from you. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying. What I'm hearing from you is almost like there were really beautiful moments growing up in your childhood, but then it was almost like there were all kinds of societal expectations and societal views lumped on top of what should have been your sacred family moments. There were certain expectations like you are the child of and you should become this, or maybe you should even feel bad that you have this or it like all these different messages coming at you that, let's say I didn't have growing up because we were just a regular family and there was nothing to kind of color over what my experiences were. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to fit in, you know, so much of the time I remember wanting to play against what I had or who I was because I just wanted to be liked. I wanted to be accepted. I didn't want to be treated any different. And I was super sensitive as a kid. So I was, I was always reading the room and reading things. And I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm just like you. <laughs> and right. in a way, that's a hard thing to do is here one is trying to not really show who they are. And for me, because it was really important for me to fit in and be liked and 
accepted is I really tried to become who people wanted me to be in the moment. Mm-hmm. Not always, but you know, cause that was important to me. And so my journey was really trying to find who I was not in the eyes of anyone else around me, family, friends, society, et cetera, but who am I? And is it mm-hmm. okay to be that and sort of step forward more and more and just who I am. Yeah. If I were to pick like a visual of you, it would almost be like someone who's wearing a hundred layers of clothes, right? Because you came into a life with a lot of things and then you're like stripping away each layer. And that's like your life's journey. You're stripping away each layer to find out who Randy is like at the core. And then you're able to use that to share that and help other people in their lives. Yeah. And by the way, to those who are going to listen and watch, some of us have more layers potentially, Yeah, but it's all relatable because we all have layers. I mean, think about the roles that we play in our lives, right? I'm a life coach. I'm a teacher. I'm a healer. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son of, I'm a sibling. Mm -hmm. I'm happy. I'm set. Like all these roles that we get to find in that our personality is, but there's something deeper. And I think everyone has had a glimpse of it, a moment Mm -hmm. of supreme presence, you know, could be the quintessential sunset or a moment with friends or sitting by a fire. Usually it's something relatively simple. It's not this huge event. It's something really simple where the cog fits in the wheel and something feels whole. Yeah. And I think underneath that is who we are, but we become so identified with the personas and the way that people see us that the experience in life hopefully is how can we shed those layers? It's okay to play those roles. Right. How can we know ourselves deeper than just our personality, our likes and dislikes? What is underneath it that's constant that never goes away? For me, that's what I'm most interested in because there's something there that feels like that's the treasure. All of this can be distracting and, you know, take Mm -hmm. you on all these journeys and offshoots, but really like, what's that constant within us that connects us to something greater? Well, I always feel like I wish that people would savor and kind of stretch out those moments because I think so many people have those awakening moments, but they kind of think it away or they get distracted in the next moment and they don't allow themselves to be affected. I mean, like for me, I woke up at the age of 32 when my grandfather was dying. Mm -hmm. And I always define my life as before 32 and after 32, because when my grandfather was dying, I had this question in my mind that kept going over and over again. And the question was, where is he going? Because I had never had a close relative passed away before. So I read this book by Dr. Brian Weiss called Many many Lives, Many Masters. Masters. You've read it? Of course. That was one of my first spiritual type books that I read. That was my first. Yeah. And for some reason, that book was like, oh my God, now it all makes sense. Because nothing ever made sense to me before. 
the way that we lived our lives and how we all thought of our lives and this human experience never added up for me. And when I read that book, it was almost like, holy shit, now I get it, you know? And I started to, that's what set me on this journey of being able to look at life kind of like from 30,000 feet and really be able to understand who we are, what we are, why we're here. And that even like what you were talking about with the picture, there's a moment before the picture is snapped and a moment after. There's a moment, well, many moments, but there's time before your soul arrives here and then after your soul departs. So that's a good analogy for that. But yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah, yeah. So that catalyst moment of change, right? It's that Mm -hmm. catalyst. It's someone close to you passing away and moving on and whatever that brings up in you. And I feel like there's so many of those moments, even micro moments daily. One little fight with a partner or an argument or a bump in the Mm -hmm. road, but those bumps are opportunities to grow and to evolve. And by the way, I I don't want to make this sound like, oh, you know, everything's so lovely. I mean, it's hard. Like that shit is hard. Going through life can be hard. And dealing with people who are older and now being 43 and starting, I didn't think about this when I was 20 years old, right. but being closer to mortality, working with clients and mm-hmm. hearing clients, you know, losing parents, losing loved ones, and really being in that. I'm so much closer to death, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Right? Yeah. It, it, and I feel like everyone should be. I was just saying this to someone the other day, there needs to be more books around death. You know, everyone celebrates life and it's like the child comes in and you see the old movies where people are handing out cigars and oh, my child is born and there's such a beautiful celebration. (laughs) And then at death, nobody even wants to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. We don't know how to deal with it. And I think if there was more understanding and some mysticism and mystery around it and actually investigating that and Mm -hmm. looking at that and being able to, I'm sure there are books on this, but being able to really talk to people who are there at end of life over and over and over and what they see and what they witness to start to look at patterns. I think it would help people to live, you know, it's almost like, well, we're never guaranteed tomorrow. Right. And we all sort of go, yeah, 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 that sounds good. I, I get it. Let's appreciate what we have. And then the next moment happens and that's lost. But anyone knows when you're really dealing with someone at end of life, things come into focus really, really quick. And you love the people around you more. You're thankful for them more. You might say something that you otherwise wouldn't say because it matters. And I right. think the hope is how could we have and create more of those moments because those little micro bumps along the way are really those things that that bring to light what we need to discover within ourselves yeah I mean I personally think and I don't know if you say this type of thing to your clients but like I said when I have like an aha moment I really try to like capture it almost like lightning in a bottle and hold on to it because I don't want to forget is like in the height of the pandemic, when everything was locked down, the only thing I was in New York at the time, 
And the only thing that we could do, like other than you could go to the supermarket, the doctor, the pharmacy, you basically had to stay home. So like millions of other people every day, I would take these really long walks around my community. And I just remember that because I had nothing else to really focus on, I would look at the grass and I would look at the sky and I would look at the way a tree like moved in the wind. And I would look at these tulips that some neighbor just planted in their yard. And I was like, how have I never noticed this stuff before? Yes. Like, how have I never noticed? Like, this is a miracle. This is beautiful. And I really never stopped to think about it before. And I made a mental note to never forget that feeling. Mm. No matter what. And? And I still haven't. I still go outside and I look at, I live by a lake. So I look at the way like the sun dances on the surface of the lake. And I look at the green grass and I say, oh my God. And even just, People laugh at this, but even if you look at your body, right, it's kind of like the movie Avatar, you know, Mm -hmm. like they go to Pandora and they get these Avatar bodies to navigate the planet with. And that's what we've been given this incredible vehicle. Like if you're so blessed to have a healthy body and you can run and you can jump and you can laugh and you can eat and you can kiss, you know, you can do all these things like that's priceless. And we put so much value on things that are not priceless rather than the things that are priceless. Yeah. You know, I wish I'm really hopeful that, you know, there's so much talk about how millennials are and then, you know, the generations under that. And I'm actually really excited to see what the newer generations, how they are just infused with this knowledge, because Mm -hmm you know, the boomer generation and before, while it existed, people weren't having these conversations. No. <laughs> right? I mean, it was few and <laughs> far between. And now, I, I mean, it's just exploded with this knowledge. And I think if we and generations that come after us, if we can teach this to our children from an early age, mm-hmm. this is built in. They might come with that knowledge, But when we talk about it more, Mm -hmm. it's built in. So the way of looking at nature, the way of looking at the planet, I mean, even kids these days, you see it, like they want to save the planet. They want to do well. They they care about people. There is this really beautiful caring system in them. And I just think, look at what we have been taught for so long, right? And all the programming of what is important, what to focus on and all that societal programming, which I can tell you, you can tell people, it doesn't lead to happiness. Right. Sure. Could it lead to being comfortable and having more choices? Convenience. Yeah. Convenience, choice, material comfort. Absolutely. And I like those things. So I'm not saying, you know, renounce it all and go be Buddha. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that people even have to do that. Right. But I think the, the, the focus on those things are going to fill some void or those things are going to lead me to be happy in my life is not true. That is a complete dangling carrot object right, right. of affection. And anyone can sort of, I think most people have had the experience where 
they look at something online or they really want something, they think about it, they can't stop thinking about it. It's like, oh, I can't wait till I get that thing. And yeah. it becomes the object of affection until they get it. They might love it. They might still love it a few weeks later, but did it change anything fundamentally about their state of being? No, mm-hmm. it never does. Yeah, it's like you have your baseline level of happiness. And then when you get something like, let's say a material thing, a car, a purse, a house, whatever, it's like you get that blip of elation and then you eventually come back to wherever you were before, or you might even go lower because you didn't get what you thought you were going to get out of it, you know? Absolutely. I mean, same thing with money. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who have lots of money, tons of money. And I work with people who don't have. And I think sometimes I've been speaking to crowds and whatever. And, you know, I've had the odd person say, well, Randy, this is easy for you to say. Or sometimes on social media, I'll I'll talk about something like this. And they'll go, well, easy for you to say, you to silver spoon. You don't know what it's like. And I'm like, ah, don't be so sure. I don't know what it's like. I've never been faced with being out on the street next month. That is true. But I've been, you know, shaking in my boots going, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to make this work. And the stress of money has been gigantic in my life, almost to the point of obsession. Well, let's like clarify this a little bit for people that maybe remember you from back when and don't know what's been going on in your life. So you moved away from Los Angeles to the Pacific Northwest Yes. Right. I mean, I, I would imagine it's to just kind of start a new life, new chapter in your life. And you pursued a career as a life coach. So can you tell me about that transition? Sure. Yeah. I started my practice down in Los Angeles. So right around when my father died in 2006, that was sort of the, the straw for me of, okay, this is it. I have to change. I'm either going to die or I have to change. And I did, and I got clean. And after that, then it was like, oh, I have a lot of self-work to do. <laughs> Why did I even reach for those things in the first place? And what was I trying to find? And so I did a lot of, I'd been doing self-work all through that period. But as you know, when you're like deep in the throes of addiction or anything big, it's really hard to make a lot of headway. Was it hard drugs or was it just drinking or like what was going it was, on? It was a lot of things. It was anything okay feel different. Yeah. I mean, I was doing a cocktail of things that was pretty dangerous. And, you know, there were many times, I mean, I have some horror stories that, you know, we don't have to get so deep and dark into it, but my friends thought I was going to die. I mean, my, they broke down my door once, maybe twice, you know, I would wind up on the side of the street midday and like the fire department is over me. And they're like, are you okay? And so it could have been a River Phoenix story. Oh, I mean, totally. it, it could have been bad. I'm amazed, Allison. Really, you said when you look back mm-hmm. and you think pre-32, after 32, this was a different lifetime for me yeah. in a way. I think I even remember meeting you and I think I, I know exactly <laughs> what you were talking about. And I remember that very vaguely. But that time, it it was a different lifetime compared to my life now. Oh, yeah, I get it. Firstly, I want to thank Athletic Greens for sponsoring this podcast. 
Athletic Greens has a product called AG1 that I have been using literally every morning. When I start my morning with AG1 drink first thing before my coffee or my morning smoothie, it's a whole different ballgame. So I wake up in the morning. As soon as I get down to the kitchen, I put in a scoop of AG1 into my water. I stir it up. I drink it down. It's a few seconds out of my morning and I just feel so much more energetic than I did before. I get 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens all in one drink. I feel like I'm starting my day on the right foot, and it's a good feeling to know that you're starting your day by being kind to yourself. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes, and I respect their company values. Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. They also stay on the cutting edge of nutritional research, which is super important to me. AG1 is the single greatest thing you can do for your body in under 60 seconds. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Allison Interviews. Again, it's athleticgreens.com forward slash Allison Interviews to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So yeah, it got really, really, really dark. And then I changed. I got clean. And then I was like, oh, who am I? What do I want to do? And that was scary, really, really, really scary because that was shedding a few layers of, well, here's how I presented myself. Here's what I do. What are people going to think? What if I totally shift gears? Does this mean that I failed? Can I even do something else? I haven't really had a job job. I mean, I've had a couple odd jobs working at production companies and being someone's assistant and whatever, but in terms of like But you You were also, you were on a couple of your dad's TV shows. Yeah, yeah. No, I acted for a while. Did it feel like something that felt right for you? Or were you just like, why am I here on this set? Like, why am I doing this? Am I just doing this because my dad's Aaron Spelling and he put me on the show? Like, what was the feeling there? So the first acting gig I ever had was early, early on in Beverly Hills, 90210. I was a Beverly Hills Beach Club cabana boy. Okay. And my dad said, try it, try acting. And I remember being on set. I had to say the same line. Do you want me to go get Henry? I had to say it literally 50 different times. It took all day. I was so frustrated. I just wanted to go play with my friends. So I remember saying, "Uh, nope, I do not like this. I'm fine being, you know, not in front of the camera. It just wasn't for me. It seemed like that was my sister's route. Wasn't for me. But at 15, I think it was about 15, Beverly Hills, Nanotona was huge. It was a phenomenon. And we were at Las Vegas and this was a family vacation for me. My dad didn't fly. So every year, uh, pretty much every year, right when we got out of school, we would go to Las Vegas for two weeks. So we went, my sister was there, whole family was there. And we were in Caesar's palace in the forum shops and my dad and my sister were getting mobbed. I mean, literally 300 people were crowding around and there was security. And I, I just stood back and watched. And even though I had been around this, something clicked differently in me because I saw people 
engage with my sister, engage with my dad. And, you know, they were being really friendly and giving hugs. Mm-hmm. And I saw people leave that interaction just filled with light, filled with excitement. And I thought, I didn't realize this at the time, this wasn't a conscious thought, but in retrospect, I could pinpoint it as if it were in slow motion. I thought, wow, what a beautiful way to connect. If I could be famous like that, and back then, you know, there wasn't reality TV or fame. I didn't really care about being famous. It's like, oh, I'll be an actor. If I'm an actor and I can influence people like that and have that outcome, That would, that would feel amazing. And I think there was a part of me that thought, and you would be special or you would be important. You would matter. Yeah. The ultimate validation, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So of course at 15, you know, I wasn't thinking of all this, but that night we were having dinner and I very shakily said, I think I want to be an actor. I was nervous thinking my parents were going to judge me or something, which they weren't. They asked me a couple of questions and we're like, great, we'll get you into acting lessons And that was my path. And then when I went back and yes, I did some of my dad's television shows and went on to do other things. At first, I didn't think too much of it. But then I remember, and it was weird. The first time I was on 90210, I wasn't really nervous or anything, even though I was a fan and watched it. But later on, I started to develop this inner critic, this voice that would tell me, People on set are judging you. Randy, you have to be on point and bring it and know all your lines and never mess up because everyone thinks that you just got this because of your dad, which I did. But instead of just wearing it and going, okay, someone gave me an opportunity, I'm going to run with it. Mm -hmm. I was insecure about it. And I thought I didn't earn this. And that was the hardest part for me is thinking this was given to me. I didn't earn it. So I never really felt good enough. Did your sister ever express to you that she felt like that? Or was it just something that you kept to yourself? And I kept to myself. I didn't talk about this that much. And again, okay. this was in retrospect, in hindsight, when I look okay. back, I could see it all and connect the dots. But yeah. in that moment, God, that would be self-aware to be able to say, you know, here's how I'm feeling, sis, but also nerve wracking, right? I don't want to expose myself and tell people my deepest, darkest secrets that are happening right now. Yeah, especially in an environment like that. And by the way, like what 15-year-old wouldn't jump at an opportunity like that, you know? And what 15-year-old wouldn't be like, you know, like just completely in awe at seeing your sister and your father just being loved by like hundreds and hundreds of strangers when you're out and about wherever, you know, I would think that that's a pretty, like, that's like a knee jerk reaction. Like I want some of this. Although what's really funny is that when my son was, was, he was four years old, he was in one of those little league soccer things. Mm -hmm. And one of the other moms works for the Rachel Ray show. So she came up to us on the soccer field one day and she's like, look, don't be mad, but I showed a picture of your son to the producers and they want to have him on the show because they were having this like kids say the darndest things segment that Rachel wanted to do. So the funny thing about it is like, if I was a little kid, I would have jumped at that. 
But my son, I took him that night to a clothing store to get the wardrobe that they asked for. And he was like being fussy. He didn't want to put the shirt on. And so I got frustrated and I said, you have to try this on. It's for a TV show that you're doing tomorrow. And he goes, what? I don't want to be on TV. And I said, but we already made the commitment. So we're driving over the FDR on our way into Manhattan. And he's like, I don't want to be on the Rachel Ray show. And he pukes everywhere in the car. So I, (laughs) so I called the producer because this was just a fluke thing. You know, he didn't yeah. want, I call the producer and I say, listen, my son just threw up. He's not feeling well. And what she says to me was, she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. What time can you get here? I said, no, you don't get it. We're not coming. He doesn't feel good. So we get him home and he looks at me and his father and he goes, I don't want to be on TV. I said, then you don't have to be on TV. Like, <laughs> no <Yeah>. issues. <laughs> so it's really funny because I think it was Jim Carrey who said this. I wish that everyone got a chance to experience utter fame and money so yeah. they could realize that it's not what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, in the day and age of social media and swiping and scrolling and seeing everybody's life, I think it's a natural human instinct to look and go, oh, it must be so nice to get a reservation whenever you want. And you know, be on a, a boat or a private plane or this or that, you know, it's like, you can't help but compare. Yeah. But it's not for everyone. It's really difficult. And I've experienced all sides of it. It's really difficult to have a spotlight on you and walk into a place and have all of that attention on you, knowing that everyone is looking at you that is a head trip in and of itself, because instead of just being you and being in here, mm-hmm. it's hard to see yourself through the lens of everyone else, right? What do I look like right now? How am I appearing? Am I doing something good or bad? Mm-hmm. That is so hard for celebrities to deal with. Right. You know, people go, oh, it comes with the territory without the empathy or the compassion that people aren't used to that and have a really sturdy foundation of how to navigate that. Because again, that's not taught. Mm -hmm. It just happens overnight. And all of a sudden people's lives change. It's hard to navigate. I totally get your son being like, that's a lot of attention. I don't want to be on TV. Yeah. He was like, look, this is not my deal. I'm not interested. And we respected it. And we said, okay, good enough. You don't have to do it. You know, it it just, it wasn't his thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think that when people see a lot of the reality stars, like the Kardashians and a lot of these influencers, and it seems like they're just so at home in the spotlight, but I can't imagine that they don't get exhausted, like mentally and spiritually exhausted at the day in and day out of being on all the time. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So you got sober, you got some clarity. I'm assuming you went to therapy. Oh yeah. I had been going to therapy, but I went to therapy. Then I started reading all sorts of books from psychology to self-help, personal development, metaphysics, all sorts of things. And then I started working with mentors and teachers and other coaches and 
I sort of expanded my repertoire of people and my path started becoming more clear. And someone suggested, Hey, what about life coaching? Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know what that term was back in 2000. Was it seven? And I said, tell me more, you know, and they were describing this. I said, I'll go home and I'll, I'll research it online. And I looked and back then there were only a couple schools. It wasn't a very well-known term. And I signed up for a year long course and it was suggested that I coach as many people as possible first, you know, pro bono, and then you could start charging. And Mm -hmm. I did. And it was amazing because I thought, no one's going to take me seriously. I don't know what I'm talking about, but there was this drive inside this purpose of, uh, no, I think I'm here to do this. I really want to work with people to help them find themselves again, to know themselves more that wherever they're at or wherever they feel stuck at, they can move beyond that. And I didn't have all the answers at the time, but the Mm -hmm. cool thing about coaching that I really liked is you can ask questions and prompts and get people to come up with their own answers. And that was how I was taught in the model of coaching. Mm -hmm. So I did, and I started working with people. And I mean, I was biting my, my nails going, are they getting anything out of this? Is, is this helpful? And then people started sharing results with me and I thought, okay, you know, I can do this. And then I was hired at a wellness clinic in Los Angeles for about six months. And I worked with trauma patients, patients who were going through chiropractic and various other modalities to help them with car accidents and things like that. But the one piece that they weren't dealing with was the the trauma around it. So I cut my teeth working with people in that area. Wow. And I learned so much really quick. So all of my personal experiences, all of what I've read, And then I started working with so many people that I started to see these patterns in people. What keeps people stuck? What's the pattern from childhood that they're still recreating now? And it was almost like a matrix moment where, you know, the the longer I did this as the years went on and I had a body of work with a lot of people that I was working with, I could start to see all these patterns. And I was like, oh, it's that. Oh, it's that. Oh, it's that. Wow. And I, I loved it and I've just kept doing it. And I think, you know, I moved to Portland. My wife didn't want to be in Los Angeles and I'd never lived anywhere else. So I was kind of excited to look at other places to live And Portland, checked a lot of boxes back then. And we moved here, started a family and uh, the rest is history. I've been here since 2010 and I've been working with people since 2007. What is the energy like? up there where you're living now, as opposed to in Los Angeles? Like what's the difference in the vibe? I've actually never even visited there. So I'd be curious. Yeah. Well, you definitely have to come. Obviously it's in the eyes of the beholder and the experiencer. So I can experience it very different from you. And it's weird. The city's changed a little bit in the last two years because of, you know, all the riots here for Black Lives Matter and various things that have happened here. So, you know, downtown and everything looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But to me, the magic of Portland is the nature. I do love the people, the creativity. There's a real emphasis on craft and the people who come up with products or do things here. It's really a, how can I make this the best? If I'm going to do coffee, I'm going to do it the best. We're going to try and find all these various ways. 
so that I appreciate. The food scene is amazing because of the Willamette Valley and our ability to grow food here in almost all seasons. Mm-hmm. There's just an abundance of you know, variety of fruits and vegetables and meats and foraged. And I mean, you name it, it's here. But I think the magic of Portland is the the nature, the topography. I mean, right now spring is starting and it starts to look like Alice in Wonderland. Like things are shooting up and the colors are so vivid. And then you have the Willamette River and then you have the Columbia. And then, you know, very quickly you're at the Columbia Gorge where there's incredible waterfalls and deep mossy lichen forests and then you could be at the coast in you know 70 minutes and then you could be up to Mount Hood I went I took my daughter snowboarding for the first time the other day on the bunny hill and I had never really been up to the mountain but once and I was just reminded wow this is 62 minutes away and you are up on a dormant volcano and it's snowing, you know, it's like 60 in Portland that day and it's snowing up there and just gorgeous. So, so much access to things here. That's beautiful. But up there, do you guys get enough sunshine? Like, you know, you always hear like, oh, it's the sunshine cloudy. lacks a little bit. <laughs> I don't mind it. I love it because growing up in LA, it was like sunny all the time. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't think about it that much when I was a kid, except for I was obsessed with weather. My dad and I would watch, oh, is it going to rain? I hope it rains longer and longer. I loved it. I don't know why, but I loved it. Well, that's, it's funny that you say that. When I lived in Los Angeles, I remember saying to my friends back home in New York, I'm like, this is so freaking annoying. It's just sunny all the time. Like I could go for some rain and clouds and cold weather. Yeah. And people think I'm nuts. Like, what? What do you, this, we moved to LA because it's perfect. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Sunny day. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think here it's more of, oh, it's another cloudy day because it is cloudy a lot. Okay. So you were talking before about how, when you embarked on your own career and you kind of separated yourself, I guess, from the spelling dynasty and everything that your family in LA and everything had to offer you. So you were talking about your own financial struggles, I'm assuming, and having to build your own practice from the ground up. So tell me a little bit about that and how you handled it. Yeah. So again, I was never at the point where I thought I'm going to be out on the street next month. I don't know how I'm going to pay my next bill. I've never had that. Right. But coming from where I came from, where I could do and have pretty much anything I wanted within reason, right? I mean, it wasn't crazy, but, you know, it wasn't raining thousand dollar bills from the ceilings at home. (laughs) But, you know, I always went to dinner. I could buy whatever I wanted at the market. I didn't have to be as price conscious. And then doing it all on my own and starting my own business and having a family, you know, and then having a home, I mean, all that stuff adds up really quickly. And, you know, then I would be really stressed about how much things cost and became really hyper-focused on, oh, that's 419. You know, could you believe that bag of chips? Then they put it up to 640 for a bag of chips. Like I was just 
so locked into what everything costs and constantly running numbers in my head. Mm -hmm. And I would say I got into a place of lack and nervousness and thinking there was a point that my accountant at the time said, now's the time that you might think about selling your home. We're kind of at that point. Okay. And I remember just being so sad, but just so devastated thinking whatever tapes were playing in my head, right? Like I've tried, I've I've been building my business and I'm out there and I'm doing what I can. I don't know what else to do. Like I'm doing my part, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm saying all the like spiritual affirmation, you know, I'm saying all these things, it's not happening. And I came home and I was, I was devastated. I was like, we have to sell our home. Right. And of course it brought up me providing and the kids and they won't have a home. And, Mm -hmm. and I don't know what changed, but something in me was like, no, I'm not going to accept that. No. (laughs) And so in the next year, I mean, quickly within a few months, more business opportunities started coming, you know, people started calling out of the blue, like, Hey, I I need a coach. I want to work with you. And word of mouth started spreading. And, you know, my business really started taking off at that Mm -hmm. point. And relatively quickly within a year, maybe two years, I was looking back thinking, wow, (laughs) things have really changed within a, a short period of time. Would you say that it was just a matter of you making up your mind? Like, I am going to succeed. I'm going to do this. Like, would you say that was the factor? Yeah, I think it was just not owning myself and not believing in myself and really looking at why isn't something happening and just constantly being frustrated, constantly Mm -hmm. in lack and what's not happening. And at some point, something clicked of, well, I can't keep focusing on that because I'm watching, you know, my bank account go like this, stop focusing on that, focus on what can be focus on what you can do. And I started shifting my focus and shifting my attention. And it really, really, really helped. But it was interesting that money scarcity never really went away. I mm-hmm. always still was hyper-focused on things, watching the accounts daily. And, and then I sort of let that go and was doing really, really well. And then we decided, okay, we're going to rehab a house. And we rehabbed a 1895 Victorian house. Oh, wow. Oh, that's and so cool. Totally gutted it and made it but it went way over budget. I had no experience and I got into a relationship with a contractor that kind of went south. And, you know, as these things go, I should have known, I was like, ah, this isn't going to happen to me. I can, you know, I won't go over budget. We won't go over time. And then it did. Right. And my business at the time was doing really, really well, but I got into that same lack and scarcity type place because I was watching everything go out. So instead of looking at being of service and showing up for clients and showing up is sort of like I became hyper-focused again on, oh my gosh, you know, we're bleeding money and it's going out. And what happened was it started to go that way. 
until I caught hold of myself. And I was like, wait a minute, Randy, you know what to do here. Come on. And, you know, I turned it around again. And I think it's such a testament to our mindset, what we focus on and what we create. Of course, we have to do our part. We have to take action. We have to do the steps that we need to take physically. But there's so much just in the, the self-help spiritual world about law of attraction and you know how to manifest things. But I feel like sometimes some of the information is incomplete because it's almost like, well, I could just do this part and say an affirmation and that will bring it. But if you have a belief that's working against that affirmation, those words mean nothing. 100%. If you hold a picture of yourself or you don't feel good enough or you don't feel deserving or something mm-hmm. happened earlier on, you picked up stuff from your parents and their beliefs around money, or you know, a teacher told you once that you'll never succeed, all those things factor into how you view money. And you know, some people, I'm sure you've heard this, it's like fear of success. Yes. They, they want money, but there's a part of them that thinks that money's bad or evil. Yes, because- I had that at one point and I didn't even realize I had that. Yeah. There were things that, that happened that I witnessed growing up around money where I almost felt like, well, if I make a lot of money, then I'm going to have a lot more responsibilities and I may not be able to spend as much time with my son and it was like there were these things going on in my mind that I didn't even know were going on in my mind. And I really had to change the framework and look at money in a more positive way. And I don't know if this happened to you, but I grew up where it was a similar situation. I was given a lot of things. So I really didn't understand money and I really didn't understand the value of money. Like I remember when I was in college, my father just gave me a mobile gas card through his business. So every time I needed gas, I was just swipe, swipe. I I would hear my friends talk about the cost of gas. And I was like, oh, you know, I didn't know. You know, I didn't understand because I would get a credit card bill and I would just, my parents would just pay it. And I realize now, and my father actually said to me, he's like, you know, he's like, I I made a mistake on that one. I didn't do you a service. And I I said, I know, because I had to, as an adult, teach myself about money because it was like, money was all taken care of. Then at one point it wasn't, but I didn't know anything about money. So then it just became a lot of pain, right? Same. Yeah. Same thing. And then you gain the self-esteem of building up, like, you know, as you learn about money and as you learn how to manage money on your own and value money on your own, your confidence in that area, like goes up. Like anything, right? If the laundry is done for you and then you don't know how to do laundry, but then you learn and, you know, you separate and you do, and you're like, oh, I did my clothes. There's that little hit of confidence. Yeah. And, you know, I talk to parents and families about this a lot. A lot of times they'll say, what's too late? You know, we really did a disservice. We didn't teach them about X, Y, and Z. And I said, no, but it's, it's never too late. Right. Because even if they're older to work with them on how to do these things and not just expect that they are going to fly in the world and be okay, but you get to teach them going through these things is really, really beneficial. And 
gets them to have the confidence which is needed. I mean, even little things like that, laundry, making bed, taking care of one's self yeah. is huge. Absolutely. It sounds silly, but if you really think about it, it's not. It's so important. Because yeah. I used to also equate kind of like what you were talking about with your parents. Well, it's like you want to show your children that you love them. So you want to make their life like really easy and you want to provide everything for them. And then at some point you go, no, 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 no. You know, like I just recently said to my son, okay, I'm going to teach you how to do your own laundry. I'm going to teach you how to do the dishes. I'm going to, because I want him to become a self-sufficient, independent human being. Right. Right. And I would assume with your daughters, you're trying to do the same thing with them. We do banking usually every Sunday. Some Sundays I miss because we're busy and I forget, but we have a savings category and they get to choose. We have a giveaway, $1 in giveaway, no matter what. So they get $5 a week and $1 goes to giveaway. They can choose any charity of their choice or they can choose to give it to someone on the street or however they want to use that give. Mm -hmm. And they can save it up and give more to one place. Then there's savings. And so like we're talking about interest. Hey, you get this amount of interest if you keep it in savings to try and teach. And I think the hardest thing for parents, maybe you can relate to this, mm-hmm. is it's so much easier to cut the orange as opposed to sit there and squirm <laughs> and go, uh, uh, oh, I, oh, can I, can I just... Yeah right? It's hard because we're busy, right? And it's just easier to do it. However, it really is a disservice because that's where they get confidence is to be able to take care of themselves. It's primitive, right? It's Mm -hmm. the quintessential, you know, human being making fire and being so satisfied with that, that they could keep themselves warm. I can cook for myself. I can make a meal. I just told a client the other day, could you, they're in the midst of a big move and Mm -hmm. I and you know, they have children and want the children to be a part of that. I said, Hey, could they make a meal one night a week? And your job is to sit no matter how the meal turns out, just enjoy the meal and enjoy that you didn't have to do it. Mm. And, you know, they've sent me pictures and it's beautiful to watch. They're at the chopping block and they're cutting and they're cooking. And I mean, I couldn't even see their face. I could see their backs, but I could Mm -hmm. feel the pride in I'm contributing to the family in this way. And that feels good. That's so awesome. So what is the greatest advice you've ever been given? The greatest advice I've ever been given. Yeah. Something that sticks with you. Yeah. I mean, there's been so, so much. The one that's coming up for me right now, two actually. I love, my dad used to always say something that was so comforting. He used to say, this too shall pass. And for some reason, the way that he said it with his voice and his tone, it was always comforting to know what you're feeling is somewhat temporary, right? Mm -hmm. It feels huge in the moment and it's going to change. So that was one that I always carry with me. Another is I have a spiritual mentor guide and one day she was over and I was cooking. My girls were young. 
and we were talking about time and we were talking about purpose and life and all this deep stuff. And she said, my dear, she's from Brazil. She said, my dear, do you know that we are never, ever late and we are never early? Even if the perception is so, we are always right on time. And I don't know the way that she said that. It's as if all the times of being late or all the times I thought I'm not doing enough or I'm not here by this age or I don't have this it all condensed and collapsed into this one present truth, then that's by design. We're mm-hmm. always where we need to be. I think the perception might be that we're off the path. So that gets us to change some things and do some things. Right. But from like a spiritual standpoint, we're always on time. I took it in and I thought, oh, yes, I like that. I like that too. What is the biggest misperception about your life? That it was always easy and glamorous and perfect. If you could travel back in time and change any famous historical event, where would you go and what would you attempt to change? I can't believe I'm going to say this, but... I think I would change the way that religion was structured. Um, Interesting. I have nothing against religion, but what came up when you asked that was that people see each other as separate. And that could have happened before religion, of course. But I think then there were these groups of I am this and you are that, and I am better than, I am holier than, you are not. And I think there's been so many wars and so many things fought over differences and separation. And I guess how I am in the work that I do with people is always going to the root and the deepest place possible that will catalyze the biggest change. And I mean, there's so many things that I could say from even in the last hundred years that I'd like to change. It's like deeper than that, Mm -hmm. the root is maybe around the time when people really started to see themselves as separate and then fighting over it. So whatever that was, maybe that was way pre-religion, a few thousand years before religion, but whatever that point was, mm-hmm. that's what I'd change. I've never heard that one before. That's a good one. Okay, so the world knows your dad as a TV producer. Who was he as a dad? Poetic, sweet, soft, caring, creative, and at times simple. I mean, some of my best memories with my dad were cleaning up dog poop in the backyard on a Saturday. Something that we would do, he'd be in his robe and he'd have his pipe and I'd be in my robe and slippers and I'd go out there and I'd help him. And certainly people could have done that, but you know, that was something when I was little he did and we did together. And then we go to the beach sometimes during the summer and stay there. And he would work from home for the week and we would fish and sort of those simple pleasures that we shared. That's a lot of what I remember. 
And the world knows your sister as an actress and a TV personality. Who is she as a sister? She is also creative, sweet, and, you know, her and I, we don't see each other as much as we would like. I mean, I'm up here, she's down there. Our lives are very busy. We have families and children, but I think there's always a anchor point of if something really goes down, there will be a reach out on either side. Okay. You know, yeah. Are you guys each other's phone call? If there's like great news, bad news, things like that. I don't know. No. I mean, I think so much life goes by within weeks, but I think if there's something, there have been times where, you know, she has been scared to fly traditionally, not always, but you know, sometimes, and she used to call me and be like, I'm scared. I want to talk to you. So we've kind of gone in and out of being super close and then just mm-hmm. not as close because of where we are at in our lives. But there's always that I can reach out to her and she can reach out to me and we'll be there. Okay. I hate flying too. That's why I was like, <laughs> can yeah. I call you? Yeah, next time I have yeah, to yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, what do you think you came into this life as Randy Spelling to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? I came in to learn who I am beyond physical reality, Mm -hmm. beyond my roles. I came here to learn how to heal how to heal self, which helped me to be able to help other people heal. I think all my lessons, I came here to learn addiction so that I can learn how to get out of that. You know, not as many people make it out, right? Right. That's not a thing daily in my existence. Whereas I know some people really have to work at it and it's like that that's just not there. So yeah, addiction and how to develop healthy habits and how to feel enough, how to go from not feeling enough, not being confident, questioning self and denying parts of myself. I was really sensitive. I was really intuitive. I kind of always thought those things weren't good. Not so much intuition, but I just didn't foster that. I didn't develop that. It was part of my sensitivity. I was like, I have to be a guy and I have to fit in and no one around me is, you know, feeling this and thinking this and I'm super empathic. And so I just sort of like shut all that in and then probably took things so that I didn't feel so much. Mm -hmm. And now in a way, it's kind of a, a superpower that I can use to help others. So, you know, to really be my authentic self and know who that is. And I think those same things are what I'm here to teach people. You know, I'm here to teach people how to be authentically you and that it's okay. And to point people in the right direction to find themselves again, because 
you know, sometimes life happens and we lose our way. We fall out of love with certain areas of our life and things become hard and there can be struggle. And, you know, I get the beautiful blessing to help people find what it is that they need to be able to feel that way again. Beautiful. And if people want to find your coaching practice, it's randyspelling.com. Yes. Okay, cool. And within your social media handles, your Instagram. Yeah. On Instagram, it's just Randy Spelling. Mm-hmm. On Facebook, it's Randy Spelling Coaching, my page. Perfect. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for this lovely, lovely interview. I'm so glad I connected with you. Me too. And I'm excited for this to come out. All right. Me too. It's good to see you, Allison. Good to see you too. All right. Have a good one. Okay. You too. So thank you guys for staying tuned and listening to this entire episode. It was a lengthy one, but it really is interesting getting to hear the perspective of somebody who grew up seemingly with a lot of wealth and celebrity and material privilege as a child, and then what that looked like as an adolescent, and then what what that looked like as a young man, and then ultimately Randy Spelling deciding that he needed to find out who Randy Spelling was. Not the son of, not the brother of, not this name and this person that people thought he was, but who he really was. And I think that is the most courageous thing that any of us can do to really say, who am I? And not lean like a crutch on the labels that the world gives us. I think if there's any takeaway from this episode, let that be the takeaway that you really have to roll up your sleeves and do the work and find out who you are because it's so easy to just say, well, this is what the world thinks I am and this is how I appear. So I'm just going to go, I'm just going to run with that narrative. Um, I, I think that anybody who does that is doing themselves a great disservice. And, and Randy knows that from experience. I know that from experience. So yeah, definitely ask yourself some of the questions that, um, that I asked him in this episode and, and see where it leads you. And, uh, and I will catch you on the next one. Peace.